Welcome to KiteLine, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in the prison system and beyond. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on KiteLine, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. Before starting with this week's theme, we wanted to share some prison-related news and announcements. On Thursday, March 23rd, Georgia's DeKalb Court held the second bond hearing for those arrested at the South River Music Festival on March 5th. Authorities moved in on the festival over an hour after activists raided a construction site about three quarters of a mile away from the festival, destroying equipment, torching a bulldozer and police ATV in direct opposition to the building of a police training facility that has faced widespread and consistent community opposition. Out of the 10 defendants in Thursday's hearing, eight people were outright denied bond and two were granted a $25,000 bond with numerous conditions. Twelve others had received consent bonds prior to the hearing. The hearing was met with grave concern by activists, journalists, and observant citizens due to the shocking reasoning coming from the courtroom. One person, the sole caretaker of her aging uncle with dementia, was denied bond as a flight risk because she is from New York. Another was denied bond without evidence of being at the site with prosecutors claiming they were, quote, part of the team because they are wearing black. A law student arrested at a food truck was released with a $25,000 bond and ordered to wear an ankle monitor, refuse to join future protests, avoid contact with other defendants, and surrender their passport. Drago Separ, defense attorney who frequently represents protesters in First Amendment cases, pointed out during the hearing that the warrants were copied and pasted for each arrest. He also raised concern over the fact that writing and using the jail support number is being used by the state as evidence of criminal activity. Prosecutor Johnson responded, claiming that having the number shows intent and that the Atlanta Solidarity Fund is, quote, being investigated as part of the whole thing. The FBI is launching federal civil rights investigations into the Harris County Jail in Houston following the deaths of dozens of incarcerated citizens there in the past few years. The move from the FBI comes after weeks of public calls for an explanation into why dozens of incarcerated citizens have died while being held at the jail. At least 21 incarcerated citizens died while in custody at the Texas jail in 2021, according to county records. Another 28 died last year, and another four have died in the first couple months of 2023, according to attorneys Ben Crump and Paul Grink, who are representing some of the victim's family members. The FBI said it will be investigating the death of two inmates, Jaquari Simmons, who died in February 2021, and Jacoby Pillow, who died in January 2023. Jail staff committed multiple policy violations in the events that led to Simmons' death, according to an internal investigation from the Harris County Sheriff's Office, which resulted in the firing of 11 employees and suspension of six others, according to the statement. A detention officer was charged with manslaughter. This week, we continue sharing Haymarket Press's panel, The Abolitionist Struggle Against Cop City. In this segment, Stuart Schrader and Micah Herskind fill in the past 40 years of historical context for why the Cop City project is being pushed through, specifically in Atlanta. Schrader teaches at Johns Hopkins University and wrote Badges Without Borders, How Global Counterinsurgency Transformed American Policing. He speaks about the surprising connections during the 1980s between the local political class, civil rights leadership, and Atlanta's role in the Guatemalan civil war and genocide of indigenous people. 
the Atlanta Police Department, started training counterinsurgent police in Guatemala, and Cop City appears to be a continuation of this tragic history. Perskind, on the other hand, discusses the contemporary context in Atlanta, focusing on the relationship between expanded police funding and broader trends in social cutbacks and carceral expansion targeted at Black people there. Here's Schrader. I want to, you know, be unequivocal um, and and echo what Kwame already said, which is that this is this plan for Cop City is not meeting a need. It's completely not to be interpreted as a demand side plan. Nobody outside the powerful coalition of, you know, capital, government officials, police leaders was asking for this facility to build to be built. Um, nobody was asking to solve a problem on the streets except the police who are asking, you know, basically to have help solving a problem that they have themselves created. So Cop City is a supply side plan. It's meant to attempt to reassert the awe-inspiring power of police that police really wish existed um, and that they wish they could re- reliably command. So for that kind of project, there's always money available. There's always seemingly political will available on the part of the backers who, you know, are a coterie of police and security experts who want to justify their own profession through police training at a moment of crisis for the police. And I think it's notable that facilities much like what Cop City is supposed to be are also being planned in other cities around the United States at this moment, in Pittsburgh, in Chicago, in perhaps some other places. So it's a competitive environment, which is probably always the case with these sort of supply side initiatives. So what is the purpose? What What is the importance of police training here? I think there are a few lessons from the history of police that can help us in addition to the wonderful context that my co-panelists have already provided. And when we think about police training, particularly in the, the context of the mock urban environment that Cop City is meant to provide, I just have to recommend a film to everybody, which is the documentary film called Riotsville, USA, which came out last year, which is a documentary about a, a, a U.S. Army facility that was built in 1968, and it was actually located in Georgia, about a two-hour drive from Atlanta. And this this film illustrates the kind of origins or one of the origin points for the, the mock urban environment as a kind of key environment for police training that is now being replicated once again. But it does raise the question, if other cities are doing this, if there's a long genealogy that perhaps goes back to the U.S. Army, um, what is specific about Atlanta? And obviously, we've already been talking about this, and and I have some, some of my own views that I'd like to share. So I think that in terms of police, Uh, In the police department, Atlanta has long viewed itself as a leader. Um, Its police department among police themselves has been considered a model. Now, of course, for people in Atlanta, this probably seems fairly ridiculous. The police force, um, as we've already been talking about, has long been plagued with severe problems, ranging from ineffectiveness to incompetence to racism to corruption. Um, And of course, it it um, is like other cities in that regard. The Atlanta Police Department, uh, I believe, was founded around 1873, marking the end of Reconstruction. Um, and and this modern police department, you know, bears a, 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 a I guess, congenital defect, you could call it almost, um, which Sarah has already introduced. Um, one aspect of that is that to become a member of the police department around 90 or 100 years ago, it helped to be a member of the KKK. 
And that's not, you know, a wild conspiracy theory. That explanation actually comes from the most important, most prominent member of the department, Chief Herbert T. Jenkins, um, who wrote that in his autobiography. That word helped was his word. Um, and Herbert Jenkins uh, was came to be considered in the middle of the 20th century, the most important white Southern police chief, in part because he was so willing, um, he, he, he was so interested in police training and he was willing to acknowledge a legacy of anti-black racism in policing. So he became the chief in Atlanta in 1947. He founded the, the city's police academy um, that year and it was subsequently named after him. And, and under his watch, the Atlanta Police Department actually hired its first black police officer the next year. So Jenkins was uh, on the more progressive side of the spectrum. It's a narrow spectrum, but the spectrum nonetheless of police. And he came to become uh, a close ally of the Lyndon Johnson administration during the, the height of the civil rights movement. And he, he ended up being the lone police officer appointed to Lyndon Johnson's Kerner Commission. So Jenkins, I think, embodied something that Cop City itself is trying to embody, which is an effort to introduce reforms and new types of training on the operational surface of policing. Um, and this, again, it takes the form of training, takes the form of technology, takes the form of recruiting new officers. But those reforms to the operational surface of policing are really meant to keep the functional core of policing unchanged. And so this is a, an old story in Atlanta. So fast forward from 1967 when Jenkins joined the Kerner Commission, which of course was a body charged with figuring out what were the problems of policing at that time. Um, so fast forward to two decades later, to 1987, and this is uh, a little anecdote that maybe people will be less familiar with. So in, in 1987, the civil rights leader and mayor of Atlanta, Andrew Young, um, he engaged in a kind of strange police reform effort that I think also helps to contextualize Cop City and again to show these longer genealogies. Um, if you're a little older than me, you may remember that in the late 1970s and early 1980s, there was a set of gruesome murders of mainly black children and adolescents in Atlanta. Something like 28 people were killed. And most of those murders remain unsolved. No one was ever charged, um, though one person was, was convicted of two murders um, in, in a much larger series. So needless to say, that was a national news story. It was deeply painful. It was deeply embarrassing for the city of Atlanta and especially for its police department, because as I said, it had been considered a, a fairly competent and modern Southern police department at the, at that time. So after those murders and other incidents, um, the police department and the mayor's office tried to rebuild and reassert the department's reputation. And Young came up with this really interesting idea. His idea was to use Atlanta's police department, as well as his own experience as a leader of the civil rights movement, um, to try to bring human rights to the police, but not the police in Georgia or Atlanta or elsewhere in the United States, but in fact, the police in Guatemala. So, so just to, to, to be clear, Guatemala in 1987 was coming out of a decades-long genocidal civil war, um, and Andrew Young, the mayor of Atlanta, thought that what Atlanta, that what Guatemala needed was help from Atlanta. That a new democratic government was emerging in Guatemala, and it could benefit from the assistance that Atlanta's police department could provide. 
Now, as many of you will know, um, the civil war in Guatemala, um, it was it was long, it was terrible. Um, and it directly resulted from a US-backed coup in 1954 when the democratically elected president, Arbenz, was replaced by a military dictator and CIA asset named uh, Carlos Castillo Armas. Now, Armas lasted only a short time before he was assassinated, but he installed a very repressive regime that attacked peasants, trade unionists, students, and others that basically led to the civil war by the 1960s and genocide by the 1980s. But the thing that's interesting about Castillo Armas um, for our purposes today is that he was celebrated and honored by the leaders of American police reform efforts after he was installed as the president. He was honored by the International Association of Chiefs of Police, which Herbert T. Jenkins of Atlanta would come to lead some years later. So why does this all matter? I think that the repressive state forces that were at the center of the civil war in Guatemala, it's important to note that they had U.S. backing. They gained assistance from the International Association of Chiefs of Police. They gained assistance from the CIA. Um, what was that assistance to do? It was supposed to teach them how to repress the left. And this was a crucial component of U.S. foreign policy in Central America. So in other words, when Andrew Young proposed to have Atlanta be a key player in the training of the Guatemalan police under the banner of human rights, he was really just adding a new chapter to a long history, which thanks to the likes of Chief Jenkins already included Atlanta. For Jenkins, the goal was to burnish the public image of Atlanta while recognizing that the problems of crime and law and order were global problems. Jenkins got that. But the human rights violations that Young proposed fixing were actually themselves the creation of prior rounds of U.S. police training. U.S. police training led to violations of human rights, and that created the opportunity for Andrew Young to then get involved and say, hey, maybe Atlanta can try to help out by introducing new training. So I think that Cop City threatens to be the latest chapter of this history. I think we're at another kind of inflection point, another moment when locally in Atlanta, there is a desire for reasserting the legitimacy and image of police. And I think once again, um, Cop City threatens to make Atlanta a key node in a national and potentially even international network of police training, which is going to, of course, introduce new technical and tactical reforms. But ultimately, I think we can be certain that the purpose of it is to keep policing's core functions of political repression and racialized and gendered social control totally intact. The connection between Atlanta and Guatemala, the sort of both the practical one and then the, uh, what strikes me as well is the mirroring function as well, the role of the police as a form of political repression, defending capitalist interests and restructuring in both places. Uh, seems enormously revealing. And what I would like to go to next is to ask Micah about the relationship between the Cop City Project and uh, contemporary forms of capitalist restructuring uh, happening in Atlanta now. So I'll just uh, ask uh, that, you know, there was widespread community backlash uh, against Cop City, and yet Atlanta's leadership voted to approve it in September of 2021. If not the community, what were some of the main forces behind pushing this project through? And is there a relationship between Cop City and the broader project of austerity and rollbacks underway in Atlanta currently? Yeah, thank you. Um, and thank you to everyone who organized this and all my co-panelists. Um, 
So I'm going to kind of try to answer those in reverse. Um, we've already gotten so many good different histories and, and sort of scales of how, um, you know, sort of contextualizing cop city within um, the broader history in Atlanta, Georgia of police training. Um, I want to try to take on sort of the last 20-ish years, 20 to 30 years, hopefully very quickly. Um, so sort of, you know, to give a sense of where we are, Atlanta, like many cities, is a hotbed of gentrification, rapid development that is, you know, hyper-subsidized by the city with public dollars um, and really public-private partnerships. Atlanta is a city um, that is in a lot of ways run by public-private partnerships. So corporate and state actors working together in unison. Um, in Atlanta, the way that that manifests is known as the Atlanta Way. Um, and the Atlanta Way essentially refers to um, the strategic partnership between um, Black political leadership and white economic elites to really run the city in the service of capital and capitalism. And in Atlanta, especially um, tourism and tech um, and, and real estate development. Um, and so this is a dynamic that goes back, you know, many, many decades, um, but was really accelerated in the lead up to the 90, 1996 Olympics. Um, so, you know, in, in the lead up to the Olympics, when Atlanta was trying to woo the, the Olympic committee to get them to come to the city, um, they did a lot of the things that organizers currently, for example, in L.A., are fighting, you know, with the 2028 Olympics. So the city built a new jail that they referred to as the first Olympic project completed on time. Um, they destroyed a significant amount of Atlanta's public housing. Um, they destroyed and redeveloped working class neighborhoods in order to create Olympic infrastructure, many of our stadiums, um, and so much more. So housing activists at the time found that the Atlanta Police Department had pre-printed tickets that had filled in African-American homeless mail that they used to just round up homeless people in mass and take them to this new city jail. Um, and this is a dynamic that has, um, you know, really continued and even accelerated in the last 20 years. So, you know, one of the places that you see this most overtly is, of course, in the development and the gentrification. People, you know, working class and Black communities have been, um, you know, pushed out of their homes and communities as property taxes have risen, often, um, you know, due to various private projects that are massively subsidized by the city. So projects like the Beltline, um, which is a walking trail that goes around the city um, that Dan Immergluck and others have written a lot about. Um, various stadiums, the redevelopment of the downtown area, also known as the Gulch. Um, Atlanta has really consistently poured massive amounts of public money and sometimes transferred public land into private hands in order to really create a certain image of the city that is friendly to capital and friendly to people who want to come and turn their money into more money, you know, at the expense of working class communities. Um, and so that's been a dynamic, you know, that, that has existed for a long time. Um, and with that said, you know, in thinking about some of the organizing landscape in the city, um, in the 2010s, especially, there were some really promising developments. So, you know, 2011, the Occupy movement. In 2013, organizers defeated um, a, a basically a sex worker banishment ordinance that would have banished sex, sex workers from the city. In 2015, due to um, a ton of organizing, there was the creation of the Policing Alternatives and Diversion Program, also known as PAD, which is essentially an alternatives to police program. 2017, the city decriminalized marijuana. 2018, they did bail reform and they ended the city's contract with immigration and customs enforcement. So they you know, no longer accepted 
um, detained and criminalized migrants to hold in the city jail. Um, and this is, again, the same city jail that was built in the lead up to the Olympics. Um, and then in 2019, the city actually promised, um, made, passed a resolution promising to shut down that city jail. So the jail that had been created, you know, two decades earlier in order to round up homeless people, um, the city passed an ordinance to, to close that jail and to turn it into a community resource center. The sponsor of that legislation to close down the jail was Andre Dickens, who is our current mayor, who is really the champion of Cop City. Um, and so, you know, all of these wins were part of sort of a broader organizing framework that a lot of abolitionists referred to as starving the beast. So essentially through various um, reforms and, you know, non-reformist reforms, reforms that take away power from the system, um, essentially trying to, you know, shrink the scope of policing and surveillance in the city. Um, in 2020, as, as Kwame really beautifully captured, um, there was, you know, really a hard pivot, not necessarily in sort of the ruling class orientation towards the working class, which has always been hostile, um, but certainly in the way that sort of Atlanta's elites um, sort of outwardly communicated um, about their values and the legislation that was passed. So, you know, beginning in 2020, many of the council members who had voted for reforms, you know, just a couple years earlier, were then voting to roll them back. Um, so in 2020, um, right around the time of the election, they rolled back um, the city's bail reform policy. Um, in 2021, they passed the Cop City legislation. Um, in 2022, last fall, um, officials, um, or the, the city council voted essentially to reverse the city's promise to shut down the jail. And instead they decided to fill it with 700 people from the county, uh, yeah, from the county jail. Um, around the same time, just this past fall, one of our only, one of only two level one trauma centers in the city was closed because the state government led by Republicans um, refused to accept Medicaid funding. Um, and our city government and our county governments led by Democrats, you know, re basically refused to put up the money. Um, at the same time, as people are being pushed out of their homes, Atlanta's government um, returned $10 million in emergency COVID rental assistance to the federal government. So they didn't use this money that they could have used to keep people in their homes. Um, at the same time, and I know I'm just running down a long list right now, um, right now the, the Fulton County, which most of it, the city of Atlanta is in, is proposing to build a new $2 billion jail um, that would essentially double the capacity from 3,000 to 6,000 people. Um, and so all of this to say is that we are really seeing right now a complete lockdown of the city, um, you know, really a dropping of pretenses from even council members who sort of view themselves as more liberal or progressive, you know, who are voting to, to roll back the things that they voted for just a couple of years ago. Um, Atlanta is, you know, the most unequal city in the country and also the most surveilled city in the country. And of course, those things go hand in hand. Um, and so sort of in shifting to think about some of the forces behind this, um, I think that, you know, as, as in so many places, of course, you know, our struggle is not unique. Um, what, what the cop city sh struggle shows really clearly is that the Democrat-Republican divide is not a helpful one here. What, what is sort of the most helpful lens is ruling class and the rest of us. Um, because when you look at, you know, who is, who is pushing this project, it's the city Democrats that run Atlanta, and it's the state Republicans that run the, you know, that run the state. Um, and so, you know, to this question of who is pushing this thing, as Kwame said, on the day of the vote, there were 17 hours of public comment. The, the public, the city council meeting went two days because there were so many people calling in to say, "Do not build Cop City." 
But on the other hand, you have this mix of state and corporate actors who worked really hard to push this plan through. Um, so to name a couple of them, first, the Atlanta Police Foundation. Um, so the Atlanta Police Foundation is really sort of the main architect of this plan. Um, they were, you know, design, they, they selected the location. They were, um, you know, putting together the designs for years, trying to push this project. Um, as Kwame said, the project didn't actually take off until after the uprisings, um, you know, for, for all the reasons that Kwame mentioned. Um, but, you know, they had, been, they had been trying to push this for a long time. They are supported by um, many different corporations, many of which are Atlanta-based and Georgia-based, um, to name a few. Wells Fargo, Chick-fil-A, Delta, UPS, Home Depot, um, the Atlanta Hawks, you know, various teams here, JP Morgan, Waffle House, um, you know, so, so they are, you know, it, it's really Atlanta's corporate elite that sort of makes up the backbone of the Atlanta Police Foundation, um, donates to this police foundation in money that is, of course, shielded from taxes. Um, and then the police foundation, you know, uses their, their, their deep pockets to advocate essentially for corporate priorities. And so the police foundation is a major player here. The Atlanta Committee for Progress um, is one of the, the public-private partnerships that I mentioned that has, you know, many of the same corporate actors, many of the universities involved, many state actors. So our mayor actually sits on, on the Atlanta Committee for Progress. Um, and there's a lot of developer interest and a lot of developer money that goes into this. And you can see all of them working together to essentially say, you know, especially after the uprisings, a perception of instability, a perception of uprisings and rioting, um, a perception that, you know, capital might not be safe in this city is not good for the image that, you know, Atlanta's state and corporate actors want to project. Um, and so, you know, much of this is part of essentially saying, you know, we are as a city projecting to the world that Atlanta is a safe place for people to, for, for, for capitalists, you know, people who control capital to come and, and park their money and to turn their money into more money. Um, I'll end by saying, you know, one other really important actor to note in all of this is the media. Um, and so our, our main media outlet here is the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. They are the paper of record. Um, and they are owned by a media conglomerate called Cox Enterprises. Cox Enterprises, um, their foundation has donated over $10 million to the Cop City project that is receiving $60 million worth of funding. And their CEO, Alex Taylor, is leading that, that campaign to raise $60 million for Cop City. And so the folks who own the media are the people who are also fundraising to build Cop City. Um, and what that's resulted in is an enormous amount of essentially manufactured consent for this project. You know, there have been countless op-eds by the Atlanta Police Foundation CEO, um, you know, various former police chiefs, you know, basically people who are contributing to these crime panic narratives. Um, this is what I'll really end on, um, you know, just to give sort of a window into how power is circulating in Atlanta and how it really functions, um, is that during the summer of 2021, as, um, you know, as like Kwame mentioned, you know, communities were mobilizing in order to stop cop city calling into city council petitioning marching canvassing holding rallies all of the things that you do um, in a campaign there were you know the city council began to you know the, the, there was a question is this thing going to pass um and we through an open records request we received emails from back when the legislation was going in front of one of the city council's committees part of the process in order you know to actually pass it where the atlanta police foundation ceo sends an email to the atlanta mayor's people 
and basically in this email says, hey, you need to pass Cop City, you need to create Cop City, people are mad, and really CEOs of big corporations are mad. And in this email, he says, I'm forwarding you an email from a CEO who have a big corporation who lives in Buckhead, which is the white wealthy part of the city that Kwame mentioned. And in this email, basically this CEO is saying, if something doesn't change about all of this crime and about you know kids in the street selling water, about the street racing, all of, all of the ways that they sort of manufactured a crime panic, the CEO says, we're gonna throw all of our weight behind the Buckhead secession movement. This was this sort of white supremacist movement to take this part of the city that has 40% of the tax base and secede from the city of Atlanta. So really sort of decimate Atlanta's public funds and revenue. Um, and so, so much of this, of building Cop City has also been a response to really the white economic power structure demanding really the securing of their assets and of, you know, and, and really a lockdown of Atlanta in order for them to stay. This has been KiteLine. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. KiteLine, WFHB, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the opinions expressed on the show. Thank you for listening.